The scripture today is from Romans 1, verses 16 through 20. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Helen. Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City, and we continue this morning in uh, the series in um, Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. It's a very iconic book in the Bible. It's going to take us a while to make our way through it. You see we're going to take kind of chunks, three or four verses here, seven or eight, ten verses there, and work our way through. Now, last week... We saw, and we read the verses again, that the gospel is all about righteousness, that we need, we need a righteousness. This morning, as we follow Paul's argument along, uh, we see why. We need a righteousness because of the, what he introduces here in verse 18. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed. Now, it's important for us to understand that Paul is making an argument. Uh, so let me show you. Beginning in verse 16... Follow along with me there, and you'll see how this works out. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So the question becomes, well, why? Why does Paul say that? And then in the very next phrase, he says, for, and that word is a, is a prepositional uh, phrase that's meant to get you from one statement to the next. It's very important. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For, because it is the power of God to everyone who believes. Well, how? Why? Where does the power come from? The next phrase, for in it, there's that word again, for, because in it a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Well, why do we need a righteousness then? And then verse 18 begins, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So four times uh, the translation inserts the preposition for, even though it's not there every single time in the original manuscript. Because the translators understand what Paul is doing here. He is prosecuting his case. He is the prosecuting attorney making a case uh, for what he wants us to understand. It's an argument. Christianity is gospel, Paul says. And the gospel is all about righteousness. And we need the righteousness of God because of the wrath of God. That's the argument. And so the gospel addresses this problem of the wrath of God. And that's where Christianity begins. It's the very first thing. It's Paul's motivation for evangelism. It should be ours as well. The gospel always begins with this concept. It's very hard for us to stomach, but it's here and we have to deal with it, of God's wrath. And our gospel presentation sh should begin there as well. As unpopular as the truth is in our culture, we have to talk about sin and judgment. Because if you strip away the concept of God's wrath against sin, there is no Christianity left. There is no gospel without God's wrath because the gospel is given to us as the solution to the problem of God's wrath. So the Christian message is about how to be right with God. 
that we're not right with God and we need to be made right with him, it's not primarily about how to fix your personal problems. I would say it this way to you. Christianity is theological. It is not, at its essence, therapeutic. It's theological. It's dealing with theological problems, not therapeutic problems. And so we're turning a corner in our journey through Romans, beginning here in verse 18 of chapter 1. Really, the the thought that Paul begins here goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And and that, that, that group of material there is the most thorough, detailed material in the whole Bible regarding sin. And so... I have great news this morning that from now until around Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about sin. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Aren't you excited? Listen, it could be worse. When, uh, when John Piper, who was a pastor in Minneapolis in many years, and if you've ever heard him preach, he's pretty intense. That's the word I would use, just intense. He liked to yell. I don't do a whole lot of that. He did. He had no. I was. The, his only tone was kind of on the edge of yelling, so it's kind of. He's kind of you know hard to listen to. It took him two years to get through this material. Can you imagine John Piper yelling at you for two years about your sin? I can't believe they had anybody in the church after he was finished. So it's going to take us you know six weeks or so to get through the material. So six weeks. It's a daunting, daunting thing. The pastors in our network, we meet on Wednesdays, and we were talking about how anxious all of us are uh, about this because it's just hard stuff. And so pray for the men who preach uh, in Polk County in our churches for boldness and wisdom and gentleness. And I feel like I need to give you two reasons, just a couple of reasons here at the front end of this for why we feel like it's a good idea for us to, to do this, to go into this material and I would give you just, just two reasons really quickly why I think this is important that we slow down, not kind of make this one sermon, one sermon on sin and get to the good stuff. Uh, and my first reason would be that part of the problem that I see in myself and that I see in many of you is, as I work with you as your pastor is we, we are naive. We are terribly naive in our culture. Uh, we're terribly naive about sin, both our own sin and the sin of others causes a lot of trouble. We get surprised by sin. We get surprised when we act the way uh, the Bible says we should expect ourselves to act, and we get even more surprised when other people, you know, all of a sudden we find out that they're not the wonderful, marvelous, um, nice, kind people that we, you know, just expect them to be. And so it it creates a lot of um, pain. It creates a lot of confusion in people, and we need to to fight against the temptation to be naive about sin. And, And one of the great ways of doing that is kind of staring down all that God says in these, in these verses about the kind of people that, that we are. But the second reason is, is that it's, it's just kind of a, a practical theological reason, is that the gospel, we know this from all of the great preaching of the, the centuries of the Christian church and the revivals and the, the movements of, of um, restoration that came to the church, that the gospel, for it to have its effect and power in your life, it first must wound before it can heal. Uh, the word of God has to come into your life and create a wound before it can really provide the solution and the, and the solve for the wound. And so I said last week that there's an offense of the cross that you have to fight through. In order to give you his righteousness, God has to first take away yours. And that's the whole design of these verses here, this part of the letter to the Romans. One by one, Paul is going to pluck away the fig leaves which we have sown together to cover our nakedness. Because there's no other way to become a Christian. You, uh, you, you, you won't look to God for righteousness as long as you have something of your own that you think will suffice. 
And so in order to be healed, you have to first see the severity of your disease. I mean, a lot of guys, a lot of guys know they have high blood pressure, but they won't do anything until they go to the doc until they go to the doctor or until they have the heart attack or until they have the little mini stroke. And then the the, the trauma of that that the reality of the situation in their lives breaking through is what causes radical change. You've noticed that, I'm sure, in people. And until you know the severity, until you experience it and feel it in your own, in your own life, you, you, won't, you won't look for the cure. And so in, to, in, order, in order to experience the joy of the gospel, you have to despair of your sin. And to get you to think about it long enough that you would come to despair about it, we've got to go really slow. Does that make sense? Because you're like me, we happy up. We want to get through this stuff and get to the good stuff as fast as we possibly can. But there's a verse, it's Romans 5.20. If you want to understand what we're trying to do in, this, in these few weeks, I wish that I would have put it on the screen behind me. Uh, but it says this, it says, Paul is talking about the way the gospel works and the way it works in our lives. And it's he, Romans 5.20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass so that where sin increased, grace might abound all the more. In other words, Paul says you have, to deal, you have to deal with the reality of your brokenness and sin, which the law brings to light. It has to come in and cause you to see that you're even a bigger sinner than you knew yourself to be. Your, sin, your sense of your sin and your desperation over the kind of person you really are and, what's, and the wrath of God coming against you has to become even more and more real to your heart because it's only then that the grace of God can come behind that and really mean something to you. So that's what we're trying to do. Okay? If you want me to put it simply, it's this. Everybody believe, everybody agrees that verse, verses 16 and 17 are really good news, right? We talked about that last week. The gospel revealed there in 16 and 17. But the problem is you won't really grab a hold and believe with all of your heart verses 16 and 17 until you believe verse 18. And what it says about God's wrath coming against sin and judgment there. So... If you want to think of it this way, the next three weeks are really going to be kind of a, a, a diagnosis of sin. We're going to take sin in three chunks. The first thing we're going to do this morning is talk about just the definition of sin. And so we're going to ask these questions this morning as we really, as we really try to kind of get our bearings. The first is, what is sin? How does, this, how does this passage help us define what Christians usually mean when they use that word sin? Secondly, we want to notice what God's response is. Verse 18 there, the wrath of God that comes against the sin of man. And then third, uh, it's such a terrifying thing that we want to make sure we end with, with just asking, then how can, we, how can we escape, the Bible says, the wrath that is to come? What is sin? How do we understand it? What is God's response? And then lastly, what, is the, what does the flight of faith look like as we, uh, as we deal with these truths being pressed upon us? So let's just start there. In the passage, beginning in verse 18, you'll see, uh, we give him the definition of sin. What is sin? And we, we, we notice there, verse 18, God says in his word, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And those two words there are really important, and their order is really important. And so let's talk for a few minutes about this. Together, those two words given to us there in verse 18 are a helpful summary of sin. When Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, you remember, there, there were two tablets. And most scholars and commentators say that there's some significance in that. In some sense, probably the first tablet has reference to our relationship with God. 
And so on it were written the first three commandments, or maybe the first four, but the first three are all about godliness, about how to properly worship the Lord and be in right relationship with him. And so any violation of those first three commandments in the, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, are, are what the Bible means by ungodliness. There's a violation of our relationship. There's a wrong ordering of our life towards him or worshiping of him. The second tablet that Moses held had reference to our relationship with one another. And so commandments 5 through 10. Now the Sabbath kind of looks both ways. Don't get caught up. That's a different sermon for a different day. But 5 through 10 there in the Ten Commandments have reference to our relationships with one another. Honor your father and your mother and don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't envy and and all these things. And they are all about righteousness. How to properly honor and respect and, and love one another. And any violation of those commandments is unrighteousness. And so ungodliness there in verse 18, refers to being against God. That's literally what the word means. It's it's the word for God with a prefix A at the beginning of the word, so it means not God is the best best way to put it. You know, anti-God, anti-faith. Unrighteousness means, it's the same thing, it's the word for righteousness in the Bible with a little prefix on it. It's not righteousness or against man, against love. So we have a problem in the vertical dynamic of our life. We have a problem in the horizontal dynamic of our lives. And the first thing that we need to see is that the two should always go together. They should never be separated. This is why Paul puts them here. You can't love God, the Bible says, without loving others. Over and over again, the Bible says this, that love, love is always the measure of faith. The way the gospel is working itself out in your relationships is always, always the measure of your your true understanding of it. This is why we take time in, you know, in the middle of our service to greet one another and, and, and speak peace to one another because as God reconciles us to himself, he reconciles us to one another. But, but there's no love without faith either. Horizontal problems have vertical solutions. Behavior follows belief. Your relationship with God, in other words, is always the first thing. If you're doing all the right things, but you're doing them because you're afraid and you don't trust God to take care of you and so you're providing for yourself, that's the same thing as doing all the bad things. It just looks different. Righteousness without godliness is not righteousness, it's sin. So you gotta keep the things together. You gotta keep those two ideas. Godliness, righteousness, you never one without the other. It's not possible to have one without also having the other. But also notice the order there, that ungodliness comes first because it always comes first. When David, King David in the Old Testament, confessed his adultery and his murder, he was guilty of those sins in Psalm 51 after being confronted by Nathan the prophet. Do you remember how he put it there? It's so striking. He begins to confess, and he says this in verse 4, against you, he's talking to the Lord, against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's a curious way to say that because if you remember the story, he saw a woman that wasn't his wife. He used his authority either to seduce her or to outright assault her. When she was found to be pregnant, he ordered her husband killed to cover up the affair. I think it's safe to say that David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and many others. And yet when he confessed, he said, against you, God. And you only have I sinned, because all all sin is first a sin against God. Every sin against someone else 
is a sin first against God because sin ultimately is the disruption of the vertical relationship, you and God. If you think about the scene in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, there is a certain order. The man and the woman sinned against the Lord by eating of the forbidden fruit, but there was another sin before that sin. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones who points this out. He says before they ate, they even before they actually, actually reached out to take hold of the fruit that wasn't theirs to eat, they had already sinned against the Lord by questioning his authority. They set themselves up against him. Before there was an actual sin, there was the sin of unbelief. And unbelief there is what Paul means here by ungodliness. It is the root of all sin, and that's important. So if you're a Christian, it helps you to know where to take the fight. And so you see those two words, very, very important. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. Is he, wants us to, he wants us to really hone in on this in our life. When he says, notice here, and you'll see how the argument goes as we go along in the, chat, in the, in the, the verses, he says that the problem here is that sin is not just you know, this thing. It is a willful, it's willful on our part. There's willful ungodliness and unrighteousness. So that verse 20 um, as, as we read there, it, the, the chapter or the, the passage that we're reading today, it ends with this, this just kind of condemning phrase, all men are without excuse, verse 20. In other words, we are, we are not unwilling participants in this. No one is innocent of any of the things we're talking about this morning. The way C.S. Lewis said it, he says, the, gate, the, the doors of hell are locked from the inside, not the outside. That, that this is, there's willingness, there's willful ungodliness and sinfulness on our part. And I'm going to get to the details in just a minute. But I want you to look at the way Paul describes this here. He says that we are, the problem is, is that there's a truth about God and we're constantly suppressing that truth in our lives. That there is a latent antagonism to the reality of God in all of us and that that is the cause. That is actually the cause of all of our ungodliness and unrighteousness. This latent antagonism to the reality of God that we're suppressing. Of course, this passage is directed not just to people who believe, but in many ways it is directed even more clearly and directly to people who don't believe. And so let me take a minute this morning and say if you're here and you're not a Christian or if you're here and you're a skeptic or if you're here and you're, you've been baptized into this church but you're 16 years old and you're not really sure what you believe, and you're kind of hanging by a thread there, let me, just, let me just talk to you for a minute. And let me say before I do that, that we believe a service like this should be a place that is hospitable to people who are skeptical and who even openly don't believe in Jesus. We want Redeemer to be a place where if you don't know what you believe, it's a great place to be. You with me? Where you can come and ask questions and search these things out. And so as I talk... To non-Christians here, I'm hoping to train those of you who believe in how to do this as well. And let me just say three things to you, I mean, to all of us, but specifically if you're here and you, and you don't really know what you believe or you're just not sure about these things. Let me clarify the teaching of these, of these verses for you and say these three things to you. First, what Paul's saying to you, and it's very pointed, and so I've got to be very pointed in, at this time, you know, at this point in, in, the, in our time together too, what Paul first says is that no matter who you are, no matter what you might claim, you can know God. The text says you can know God. Paul's clear that he has revealed himself in creation. So go down to verses 19 and 20. For what may be known about God is plain, Paul says, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the thing that, he's, that he has made. Psalm 19 this is an echo of Psalm 19, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God. 
The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day they pour forth speech, and night to night they reveal knowledge, and their voice goes out into all the world. And so the clear teaching of the Bible is that God has not made himself hidden. He has actually revealed himself, his glory, his, his bigness, his power, and his authority, which are only a part of who he is, have been made known to us as we go outside and look up in the sky and as we experience Irma and all of her devastation and as we encounter these things in the world in which we live in, they are screaming the reality of God to our hearts. You can know him. Secondly, not only can you know him, but this text actually teaches us that no matter who you are, no matter what you might claim to believe, not only can you know him, but if you were honest for a split second, you would admit that you do know him. Not only can we know God, but we do know him. That's what the apostle claims. I mean, just think, the vast majority of people in the world believe in God. Go to the most remote village in South America. They're worshiping gods of some kind. John Calvin has written about this. He says, there is within the human mind by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. God has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Ever renewing its memory, he repeatedly sheds fresh drops. In all, there is some, quote, this is seed of religion. It's exactly what Paul's saying here. That God's power and his divinity are made plain in the creation so that even if we don't know it consciously, we see him everywhere we look in the world. Even more than that, John Calvin says that there is an internal awareness, this internal awareness, whatever you, the conscious, whatever you want to call it, that we not only know God, in chapter 2 he's going to go on to say that we have an internal sense of right and wrong so that when we do wrong, we actually feel, even though we may not admit that it's wrong, when we do something wrong, we feel it. We, we feel this and say, oh gosh, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. We feel condemned because there's this internal barometer of right and wrong. We know God's there, we know that we have rebelled against him, we know we stand condemned before him. And what Paul is saying is that all of that is there even if you claim no belief in God. So if you look at the conversion stories of, of the intellectuals who have become Christians in the, in the 20th century, Guys like T.S. Lewis and W.H. Auden and, and C.S. Lewis, of course, um, what you'll hear them say is, is they'll say something like this. They'll say, you know, it wasn't so much that they were finally persuaded by the truth. Uh, they didn't believe because the arguments for the existence of God were intellectually compelling. No, they all describe, it's just fascinating, it's kind of across the board, they all describe coming to a place where they had to admit to themselves that they had believed in him all along and they were just being stubborn. In other words, the obstacle wasn't intellectual. They didn't need to be convinced that God existed. They knew that he was there. They just didn't want him to be there. Now let me stop and say to the Christians, doesn't that help you in your evangelism? Parents, doesn't that, if you have kids struggling with the faith, doesn't that help you to know where the work is that you got to do? The world, the world scoffs at our faith, but remember, it's a nervous scoff. People don't need information. They need to be challenged to be honest with themselves, and to admit the real issue, that none of us are objective. None of us are objective about this stuff. The problem is not information. The problem is that unbelieving people, and even many of us, they don't want it to be true. And so the goal for evangelism is not to give people information. It's to cut through self-deception and inconsistencies. 
the most effective way that I've seen to do evangelism is just to call people's bluff. Man, I wish we had time to get into all this, but again, another sermon for another time. But to, but to really go after people and say, let's, be, let's have the courage of our convictions. Do you really believe what you're saying? Because I have doubts, and I think you do too. And to really just go after that sense of dishonesty and deception and inconsistency. But here's, here's the thing. So the Apostle Paul says, no matter who you are, no matter who you are and what you claim to believe, the truth is, according to the scripture anyway, is that you can know God. Not only can you know God, but that you do know God. But then thirdly, he says, but the problem is, is that even though you do know him, there's a sense in which you don't know him. Paul says we know God, but we're suppressing the truth, verses 18 and 19 there, of his existence and his authority over us, that we are not willing to admit that we are completely dependent upon God for everything, that he keeps us alive every second, that everything we have belongs to him, that we owe him everything, that we shouldn't make a move without asking him. And we hate all of that because if that's true, it means we're not in control of our lives. And so what we do, this is absolutely fascinating, okay? It's one of, this is one of the most fascinating passages in the whole Bible. But if that's true, what we, do, we psychologically and we emotionally push down that truth, that's what Paul's saying. Uh, we suppress the truth. That's what the word means. It means to hold it down. And the analogy, the, the picture I would give you to explain this in your life is if you've ever watched a child play with a beach ball in the pool. Have you ever watched this? And, and, and they try to keep it down. They try to push it down and hold it down under the water. And then, you know, they lose their mouth. Whoop, boom, it pops back up or whatever. That's the word here. That's the image here in Romans 1. All of our emotional energy is going into denying what we know to be true. Think about that. Can you think how emotionally exhausting does that have to be? To constantly be trying to deny what we know to be the truth. We're constantly pushing down the truth, but it's like a beach ball. It wants to come back up, and so we've got to use all of our strength to keep pushing it down. And it's, it's, it's the cause of a lot of psychological and emotional turmoil. Because the reality of God is traumatic. Listen, especially when you know enough, just enough to have a sense of his power and his authority and his divinity, but not to know his love, which is the plight of unbelieving people. And so we try to run from him. We try to do life without him on our own. And that's what the Bible means by sin. Sin is a willful rejection of the reality of God and a turning away from his authority over us as creator and Lord. Can I say that again? It's a willful rejection of his reality and a turning away from him as creator and Lord that leads to all kinds of ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. The problem is not that we can't know him. God is not playing hide and go seek. He has plainly made himself known in creation, in conscience, and of course, ultimately in the scriptures, in the record of redemptive history. And the problem is we don't want to see. We don't want to know. Have you ever said that? Have you ever been in the middle of a conversation with somebody and start to give you some, some facts about something and you'd say, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to know. Have you ever done that? Because you know you're about to get information that if you get the information, you're going to have to do something with the information. And truly, ignorance is bliss. But hear me, especially when it comes to God. Especially when it comes to him. So the second thing we learn here then 
is God's reaction to this way of, our, of living our lives. And it's this one word, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And as soon as we read that, I just wrote my notes. Houston, we have a problem. Because our society hates this idea of, of God's wrath. It's deeply offensive to people. I don't need to tell you this. And the reasons are complicated and, again, would take too much time to explore. I can't say everything that I wish I could say. But we don't believe in a God who is both a God of love and a God of wrath. He is either one or the other. This is kind of what we force upon him. Our culture dismisses the God of the Bible because, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's the way that we've made him known to our our culture or the way that they just misunderstood, they, they understand wrongly the God of the Bible as being only wrathful and have chosen instead to construct an imaginary God that is only loving. And, and it's an easy choice. Every single one of us, if we were honest, would prefer a God of love and no wrath. And I use the word we because the church is not exempt. Just a few years ago, the Presbyterian Church USA, that's not our denomination, but the one we came out of in 1973, they were putting together a new hymn book. And the committee in charge of that project made the decision to exclude the song we sang. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to sing it this morning. That song, In Christ Alone, which is one of the most widely sung worship songs over the last 10 to 15 years. And the committee decided to not include the song. And the reason was because the line, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God is satisfied. It was just too offensive. They didn't want it in their hymnal. And they wanted to change the words uh, that the love to the, on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And I, and I just love it. They asked, they asked uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, who wrote the song, if they could change the words. And the Getty said, no. That, that's the words. Because that's the truth that we're going after in the scriptures. And so, and so it got left out. Now, we've grown superstitious uh, we've grown, we've grown what, what I would say is this, is that what we say in our culture is that, you know, this is a problem because we've grown past these superstitious notions of a vengeful God. And it's really just an unbelievable form of chronological snobbery to think that we finally have become enlightened enough to know what's true, what's really true, and all those people in the past are just dumb. That the, but the hatred, the, the, the reality is, is that our hatred for the wrath of God is an ancient heresy car, called Marcionism, and it's from the second century. And so our, our opinions are not newly minted. I mean, wash, rinse, repeat is basically the way it goes with theological controversy over 2,000 years. Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament was harsh and vengeful. And then the God of the New Testament revealed in Jesus was, in the words of another church father, Tertullian, neither offended nor angry, that he doesn't inflict punishment. He has no fire warming up in hell. He is merely kind. And our ideas about the wrath of God are not new. They are not unique. They have been an enemy of the gospel from the very beginning. And so we need, as we... As we try to turn the corner here, we need to properly define this idea of God's wrath then. And here's how we would define what the scripture is teaching us about who he is and how he feels about uh, sin that we are guilty of and others are in the world. And we want to say it this way, that God's wrath is his righteous anger poured out as an expression of justice. His righteous anger poured out as an expression of rightness. And so the problem that we come up against here is our unfamiliarity with righteous anger, loving anger. And the reason... 
the reason we, we uh, are so unfamiliar with it is because we all, whenever, when somebody gets, you know, what we do in the church, we get really mad, and then we feel really guilty about getting really mad and blowing off steam, and we say, but I have righteous indignation. No, you don't. God does. But we, most of the time, are incapable of this. God is not. And it's very clear from Scripture that God is angry at sin. Okay? It's also very clear that he's loving and kind and righteous. And here's what he is. Listen, he is never one and not the other. And so the point at which my anger begins is often the point where my kindness ends. Because I'm sinful, but God is not. God is never angry and not kind. And that's really what trips us up. And what I would say to you is we have to submit to the revelation here. God is never angry and not loving. When people talk about wrath, they imagine God's anger being like our anger. God having a temper tantrum. Or a big bully who expects everybody to bend to their will. Or this is what, this is what um, kind of progressive... Uh, Christian theologians, when they really object to that idea of God's wrath and the cross, they'll say the cross is cosmic child abuse. And these images capture our, our anger and our wrong notions of anger, but God's ways are not our ways and his wrath is not our wrath. Listen, God is love. He is holy. He is not wrath. Luther, this is a, my paraphrase, and, I, and Luther would probably roll, roll over in his grave to hear me put it this way, but I think it translates and is helpful. Luther said God, God's mercy is his day job. That judgment is a side gig. The scriptures describe God's delight in showing mercy and his reluctance to exercise wrath in many places. So God is fundamentally love. He is not wrath, which means that his wrath is an expression of his love. Now, how can that be? And the answer is because it is never capricious or irrational or unpredictable. It is always, always aimed at evil. You know the verse that says we are commanded to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good? You know that's in the Bible? Hate what's evil. Cling to what is good. God's wrath is the expression of his hatred of evil, which is good. To hate what is good is evil. To love evil is evil. It is immoral. I mean, if you love someone, you will hate whatever harms the one you love. Are you with me? You following what I'm saying? If you love someone, you will hate whatever harms the one you love. So this doctrine does not mean that God is hateful. It means that he hates whatever destroys the thing that he loves the most. And that's a wonderful thing. It's an absolutely wonderful thing. So if you're still having problems with this idea of God's wrath, let me gently lead you towards two different thoughts. And the first would be just this. Have you considered the consequences of believing in a God who is not set against evil? Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian, writes this. A non-indignant God would be an accomplice to injustice, deception, and violence. Teenagers, put it this way. Imagine... If someone hurt you badly, you experienced real unsolicited evil from someone at school. And it was, it was just frightening to the degree that, that you were falling apart. And you came home and you told your parents. And when you told them of this great evil that had been, that had been done against you, they kind of just shrugged their shoulders and say, Well, I guess we just kind of have to forgive. 
how would that make you feel? Would that make you feel seen? Would that make you feel loved? Of course not. The only moral response, the only loving response to evil is anger. You would want your parents to come against the evil that you'd experienced with all of their strength and resources because that's their job. And it seems so natural to us when we think about it that way, but when it comes to the Lord, it seems unnatural. Uh, But have you considered the consequences of believing in a God that is not set against evil? Secondly, here's a second thought. If you're not sure you like the idea of God's wrath, before you decide on the truth of the revelation, I want you to do this. This, These are Bud's words, but I'm filter it through your privilege. This is a distasteful doctrine to American evangelicals because, not because they're evangelical, but because we're American. Filter it through your privilege. Here's what I mean. Disgust about the wrath of God is a first world problem. Throughout history, oppressed peoples, those suffering under real evil, have taken great comfort in God's promise that there will be ultimate justice. That he will do away with evildoers. It's what... It's what American slaves sang about in the cotton fields because they knew a day was coming when God would right the wrong. And it was what, it was what made them help, you know, allowed them to hold on. He will do away with evildoers. That's the promise. The biblical picture of a God who is angered by injustice and unrighteousness is empowering to people suffering under injustice. So be careful. Be careful about your prejudices. Be careful about the cultural lenses through which you view these things. Wrath, the wrath of God being described here is not, is not a falsity. It's a very real thing. However, it's not an emotion. It's a righteous activity. It is God's absolute enmity against all wrong and the promise that the, that the day will come when every wrong will be made right. And it helps us look forward to what the Bible calls the day of the Lord or the day of God's wrath the final judgment, the great day that's talked about all throughout the prophets of the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation as well, when all of the nations we were reading in Revelation a couple weeks ago, it just stopped me, where it describes all of the nations being gathered before God, and here's the phrase, and it says, they were gathered before the Lord and the books were opened. It just stopped me dead in my tracks. That there's going to be a day when the books are open, when finally everything will come to light. Everything will finally be seen for what it really is, and God will deal with evil with finality completely. That's, that's the right response. That's good news. That's part that we have a God who, who morally objects to evil in the world and the things that are ruining the thing he loves the most. And so let me, ask, let me ask a question, and then I'm just going to come to the close here. To you, to you, let me ask, is God angry with you when you sin? Yes. Why? Because in your sin, you're destroying yourself and others, and he hates that. But what about if you're a Christian? Some of you are doing Disciple by Grace, and in, in the, the fourth lesson of that, it opens with this, with this question, is God angry with the Christian when, when he sins? And, I, and for years, I, I was trying to talk people into the, the answer, no, of course he's not. And listen, it was, it was wrong. If you're a Christian, is God angry with you when you sin? Yes. 
because he loves you. And anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. Love and anger are two sides of the same coin. His anger towards you is the anger of a loving father, not the anger of a righteous judge. Now, my dad happens to be a judge. And I've been in his courtroom, and he, he's really a kind guy, but, I, but my favorite parts, my favorite parts, I've always only known him to be kind. Uh, so it's, been, it's really cool to watch him when he gets really, like, mean and angry and, like, starts throwing his weight around. And it typically is when he's especially, there's, there's real evil that's right in front of him, and he has to kind of perk up at it. You know what I'm saying? It's my favorite part. Now, let me ask you a question. What if... He was in the courtroom one day, and he looked up from the bench, and he saw me, his son, standing there before him. I'm pretty sure he'd be angry. But it wouldn't be the anger of a righteous judge. It would be the anger of a loving father. And that's the promise for the believer, see? Now, if you're not convinced... You may not be convinced. It's somewhat mysterious to us how God's mercy and judgment are perfectly united in the, in the eternal nature of God. So how is it that God can set, be said to be full of love and wrath against sin at the same time? It's something that's beyond our normal experience, so it has to be revealed. God has to make it known. And according to Paul, that's exactly what's happened, that the love of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed in condemnation. His love is revealed, verse 17, in salvation. But where do those two things come together? Where in history does this revelation of wrath and love side by side take place? And the answer, of course, is the cross. That the cross of Jesus is the revelation of God's hatred of, of evil. And it's a prefiguration of the great day of the Lord. The Old Testament scriptures, when they talk about the day of judgment, they use images of darkness and drought and earthquakes to describe the, the horror and the terror of that day. Nahum 1, for example, which we read. But in the gospel passage we read, it says uh, that as Jesus hung upon the cross, darkness came over the land. In the middle of the day, it was dark. And from the cross, he cried out, I thirst. He experienced a kind of cosmic thirst and drought of soul. And of course, when he breathed his last, the gospel again says the earth shook and the rocks were split and the curtain was torn in two. And so what's all of this imagery that Matthew is using? It's very specific. The gospel writers are synthesizing all of the Old Testament scriptures about the day of the Lord to describe Jesus' death on the cross. God must punish evil. And you, no, no one is exempt, neither you nor I are exempt, but if you put, put your faith in Jesus Christ and trust him, then his cross becomes your judgment day. That's the truth of the gospel. The wrath of God do you for your sins is satisfied in him, for every sin on him was laid, and now in his death we live. That's what we're saying, isn't it? This is the truth about God revealed in the gospel. He is a God of wrath and love. And he has made a way for us to escape the wrath that is to come. If your faith is in Jesus, there is no wrath to come. There is no judgment day ahead of you. Your judgment day has come and gone. Jesus stood in your place on the cross. If you're not a Christian, God is angry at your sin. He's infinitely angry because he's infinitely worthy and he's infinitely loving and he desires with all of his heart that you would turn to him look to the cross and here's the first step be honest you don't need more information but the revelation of a god of wrath who is also a god of love the cross of jesus christ is the very truth that can warm your soul defall your soul so that you would come to him and that's what we hope you do this morning believer and unbeliever alike 
let's run to his table as we gather now around this meal. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us because we would have never come up with any of these things on our own. They are perplexing to us. They are so outside of the pale of our normal experience that we would never, we would never, we would never come to this apart from you making it known to us. And so, Father, we have great need for you to continue to teach us these truths to continue to speak to our hearts that are by nature unbelieving and full of doubt. Uh, we would say to you, we believe, Lord, help our unbelief. And so we thank you for the, the opportunity to gather around this table now uh, to be once again confirmed in the promises that you've made to us, to have our, strength, our faith strengthened as we struggle towards right belief in you, towards submitting our hearts to the reality of who you are, not running from you, not, not suppressing the truth down because it's too painful and too traumatic, but to see the glory of both your wrath and your love displayed on the cross and at this table as we celebrate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so come now, continue to teach us, continue to speak to our hearts, continue to shape us as a people after your own name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I, uh, on Saturday mornings, one of my practices is to go out and get my family breakfast, like a, like Panera or something like that. So I went out yesterday and, and got breakfast for my kids, and, my, and a couple of them were there when I came in, and they said, thank you for getting breakfast. And then within about five seconds, they were literally arguing about like pulling the bagel apart to see who was going to get the part. And I said, your thank you means nothing <laughs> when you act with such little gratitude and joy and power. That the love that I have shown to you by going to get you breakfast this morning <laughs> should cause you to just be overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving in the way that you go and love. So don't let that thank you uh, be just, just hot air that we just sang is what I'm saying. Don't just say thank you and walk away and not be changed by the things that you're saying thank you about. Let those truths change you at the depths of your soul and then you truly will be someone that when people see your beautiful works, they will be drawn to the God who makes living like that possible. Go and live like that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.